Well, good morning. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm the director of teaching uh, and ministry here at Mercy House. I, I do want to welcome you uh, here to Mercy House. If this is your first time, glad you're here uh, joining us for worship this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 130, uh, and there are just five more psalms until we're done in our sermon series called The Long Road Home, which is covering all of the 15 songs of ascents. Um, the series is really following the songs that Israel as a nation would sing during their many pilgrimages back to Jerusalem to worship together as a community. And this psalm was probably the hardest one for me to write a sermon on, I'll be honest. This past week was a struggle for me, and, um, and I think that as you're, you're, you're hearing it, and there are themes of forgiveness and confession uh, that I think can be really challenging. And so for me, uh, it was hard to put together and articulate uh, just the heart of, of the message in this psalm. So I, I want to encourage you, if you're having a hard time hearing this and even reading the text and hearing the text and you're like, man, I don't know if I want to go to that place this morning, I want to encourage you that this is a good place to be uh, and, and we're going to walk through it together. So as you read through the psalms, the, the, the songs themselves helped encourage this nation through the really challenging uh, and, and difficult long road home that they would be traveling on. And the songs themselves helped them focus on God. It gave them a, a healthy perspective. And the songs would address fears, anxieties, and hardships. It really helped Israel think rightly about the world around them. And it really started with a right understanding about God and his understanding with Israel. And so last week we were in Psalm 129. We looked at suffering and persecution that Israel as a nation had endured. And, and that, what was remarkable about that is that um, Israel did not shy away from talking about their past experiences of pain. And they didn't avoid it. They didn't pretend that it didn't happen. What they did was they faced it head on. They acknowledged it, yet they were holding fast to an even greater incredible truth. And this reality that God had never let their oppressors prevail against them. That even in their deepest and darkest experiences of pain and suffering and affliction, which for them there were many, God never stopped guarding them and protecting them as a people. And their hope wasn't in safety or security, per se, but they had this understanding that when suffering and hardship came, what it, what it meant was that God was using it to build them and to refine them as a people. And so suffering and pain, it wasn't their greatest fear. They didn't avoid it like it was a prime evil. They embraced it. And in that, it actually produced a great sense of grit and confidence for them as a people. We talked about how this is not only the legacy of Israel, but it's our legacy here in the church. And God doesn't just hold fast to his people in their suffering. He can even use that suffering for their good. And so the promise that we see in the Bible is that God will make right every single wrong, that he will bring eventually this perfect justice because it's in his character, his righteousness to do so. But we also see a promise that God is with us in our suffering, never leaving us or abandoning us, but being intimately with us through whatever we go through. And so his presence gives us great peace in our suffering and we know that this is not just an empty gesture, uh, but one that is backed by the actions of Christ as he himself suffered the greatest affliction on our behalf. And so having been rescued from this great and horrific fate of eternal suffering, we know that God can sympathize with us and that the trials of this world really are trivial compared to what awaits us in our sin. 
And so where Psalm 129 helped us see how we can rejoice in our sufferings, how we're not to cower away, not to run in the opposite direction, but how we can embrace the challenges and the hardships of life because they really are the means by which God grows us as Christians. And so God can use these areas of pain and suffering in our lives to increase our endurance, to increase our joy, increase our hope. But where in Psalm 129, it may have been a focus on kind of the, the perspective we ought to have in our suffering. Psalm 130 this morning, we'll look at what we are to do practically as we wait, as we are in the place of great suffering. So let's jump in, starting with verse 1. Verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And verse 1 establishes the setting of this psalm for us. And it isn't a physical location. It's actually an emotional place where this psalmist is crying out to God from. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. See, the word depths here is a reference to the deep depths of the ocean. That's how it would have been understood. And poetically, the psalmist is painting this picture of being in a place where they are cast out at sea. They're completely alone out there. They're isolated. They're surrounded by darkness, and they're in incredible distress. In the South Pacific, there's a place called Point Nemo, and it's not named after the fish. It's named after the famous submarine sailor from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And what's significant about Point Nemo is that it is the one point on Earth that is farthest from land. And so when you're at this place, there, there is nowhere on earth where you could be further away from dry land. You are completely surrounded by water for at least 2,688 kilometers or 1,450 nautical miles around you. So to put this into some context, if you swam at the average rate, which is pretty normal, of two miles an hour, it would take you 275 hours, a little over 30 days of nonstop swimming to reach land from that point. Like, you're not going to make it. You are in the middle of nowhere. So imagine being dropped at Nemo Point in the water, no life preserver, no radio, no snacks, no fresh water, and night begins to fall, and you are all alone in the ocean. This is where the cry is coming from. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is where the psalmist is at. Not literally, but he's communicating the, his, his distress and his despair, how overwhelmed he feels, how lost and how hopeless he is. And the psalmist is in a place of great suffering and immeasurable fear. Mercy House, we need to know that this place exists for the people of God. So let's not be naive and, and thinking that Christian life is all roses and rainbows. And what we're being confronted with here is this reality that, that there are seasons of our life where we may feel like we are cast out and barely treading water at Point Nemo, where we experience so much affliction and so much pain, so much despair and hopelessness that it feels like we've been dropped in the middle of the ocean and that we're drowning with no one there to help us. There are a couple things that we can do with this reality. The first is to take some solace knowing that if we find ourselves in this place, it's not as if something strange or unique is happening to us. And, and even though it feels like we're isolated and alone, the reality is that Point Nemo is a common place for those who are on the long road home. 
And the other thing I think that we do with this truth is to let it prepare us for when we will find ourselves cast out at sea in the place of great distress and great fear and great overwhelmedness. That's not a word. (laughs) So what do we do if we find ourselves like the psalmist at this place, cast out, hopeless, in darkness and despair, when we feel absolutely out of control or completely overwhelmed? Well, we see it right here. What we do is we call out to God. We call out to God literally. When the psalmist is talking about calling out to God, as we read the psalms, and and this happens pretty often, it's not like a fluffy and empty spiritual exercise. Like It is a literal calling out to God, saying, God, help me. That's what is happening when you see these words in the psalms. And someone who's very well documented in their crying out to God was David. And when King David was surrounded by armies who who were beating on his door and trying to overtake his kingdom and kill him, he cried out to God. When he was in the place of great fear and in great despair, when he was hopeless, when he was in the depths, he cried out to God. We see this in several places, and and, and here are a few. So Psalm 4, verse 1. This is David writing. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, verses 1 through 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groan and give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Psalm 102, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. David cried a lot. He cried a lot. And crying out in distress to God it is prayer to God. And the thing is, is that God loves these prayers. These types of prayers are quite possibly the most honest and most genuine prayers that we'll pray in our lives. When we're in a place, when we're finding ourselves in a place with no hope and in great distress and in need of rescue, like there's no fluff in that prayer. There's no Holy Father, we come before you today thankful for how abundant your grace and how merciful you are. Like, there's nothing wrong with praying like that, but the prayer of the psalmist is loaded with urgency and with panic. He's saying, God, help me. I'm drowning right now. God, I I need you to pay attention to me. I need you to come, and I need you to to have mercy on me. It's a simple prayer. It is honest, and it is authentic, and it is beautiful. See, in moments of despair, when you're in trouble, your true theology, or what you believe about God, is going to be revealed. Because what you cry out to reveals where you're putting your hope. For some of us, the most, uh, and most of the world around us, God is not necessarily what we cry out to right away uh, when we find ourselves overwhelmed or in distress. We cry out to all sorts of things. Maybe it's other people. Maybe we hop on a call with our mom, or we FaceTime our brother, or we cry out to a roommate. And maybe we just try to ignore that we're actually in the depths. Maybe we do something to help distract ourselves from the despair that we feel. Maybe we turn to things to help numb our suffering, or we run to whatever helps us cope when things in life are hard for us, when we feel like we're cast away, alone, and drowning in the middle of the sea. See, we might not intuitively or reflexively cry out to God. The things that I'm mentioning here, the things of this world that we run to, each have their varying degrees of helpfulness. 
So I would never say to you that you shouldn't go to your brothers and sisters or that you shouldn't FaceTime your mom if you're in a tight spot. But we have to realize that there is no one and nothing on this planet that can minister to our needs, the needs of our souls, like the God of the universe who created us and who loves us. No one who can dispel fear, who can provide comfort and instill confidence and reassure us like the Father who loves us, who delights when we call out to Him from this place, when we call out to Him in prayer. As a parent, you don't need to be a mind reader to know what your kids are thinking. You can actually discern a lot simply from just hearing how they call out to you. Like, I know the difference between, like, when Chloe and Davey, when they just want something and when they actually are in duress and need some help. Like, I, I know when they're calling out because they're thirsty and they say, Daddy, right? Like, that's, that's the tone of, like, they just want something. And I know when they're in serious trouble, by the way, they say, Daddy, right? Like, there's panic in their voice. And as a parent, you can pick up on that. And you can bet that I'm much more quick, much more desirous to sprint to their health depending on how they're calling out to me. And as their father, I delight in being able to help them. And we find ourselves in the depths, the first person we ought to be crying out to in honest prayer is to God, our Father. And we do this when we have a correct understanding of who God is as our Father and how He wants to, as our Father, help us in our distress. But look at what the psalmist says in verse 2. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The main request of the psalmist that he has for God is not deliverance or, or, or rescue. He, he's not saying, God, get me out of these depths. Like, send a boat to this place and relieve me from my despair. No, the psalmist's primary request is that God would be attentive to him, that God would hear him and his cries. Why is that? What it's showing is that the psalmist is relying on the character of God to determine how God will respond. And see, uh, all, all it will take for God is to see what is happening, and then he will act. And think of a lifeguard who's, who's constantly scanning the shoreline. And as soon as it's brought to her attention that someone is in trouble, they're going to immediately sprint into action. She doesn't need to receive a formal letter that's written to her. Someone doesn't need to make a case for why she should go save this person from drowning. She is compelled by her duty and her responsibility as a lifeguard to sprint into the ocean and rescue that person who's drowning as soon as it's brought to their attention. And this is the hope that the psalmist has. The hope that God, not just obligated out of duty, but because of his compassion and his kindness and his love for his people, he will be driven to act on behalf of his children. Like he can't not help if he hears their cries. Like a mother who hears the cries of a newborn baby or babies. And this is a shout out to the Fortes who just had cute twins. Like when both of those babies are crying in the middle of the night, they are sprinting to action. And this is why the psalmist is, is crying out to God and trying to get God's attention. He's crying out in a genuine plea for help and knows that if God just hears his cries, he can rest, knowing that God will surely respond and he will rescue. Mercy House, God hears you in your distress, and he will come to you when you cry out to him. And this is a core piece of theology that is crucial to navigating this long road home as a Christian. So the Christian faith is not one of empty optimism. 
but based on a real relationship with God who hears and who responds. Well, how do we know this? Like, how do we know that we're not just crying out into the void, that our pleas for help aren't aren't falling on uh, deaf ears or maybe no ears at all? One of the ways that we know this is in God's Word. Let me take you back to week one of this sermon series. We actually started this entire sermon series going uh, back to this very first verse that we looked at in Psalm 120, the opening verse to all the songs of ascents. Verse 1, it says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. And He answered me. This is the Word of the Lord. This is not an outlier verse either. This is a part of a larger, cohesive understanding of how God relates to us as we pray to him. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Jeremiah 29, verse 12 and 13, Then you will call upon me. This is God speaking. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Mercy House, do you believe that when you cry out to God, that God hears you? It's a serious question we ought to ask ourselves or else we shouldn't be praying. If you don't believe this, I encourage you to hear these words of Scripture and believe. And believe because these words are trustworthy and true. Believe that God does hear you in your distress. And if you do believe this, then why would we not always call out to our Father in heaven in any and all circumstances? Why would we run to anything else to help us when we have the ability to call out to the God of the universe who loves us and whose job it is to care for us? God is not busy. He he doesn't have better things to do. He delights in engaging with us in our moments of need. He loves it when we look to Him and rely on Him to be our Father. It's why he's given us the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6 says that it cries out from within us, Abba and Father. Abba there is like Daddy. Like we're crying out to God and asking him for help. And so while it's true that that we should be encouraged to call out to God and pray to him regarding anything, what we see in this psalm is that the psalmist is not asking for rescue from a particular circumstance. He's not asking for patience to deal with his children or extra help on an exam that he didn't quite study enough for or for his favorite sports team to win, which hear me, like there's nothing wrong necessarily to pray for these things, but the psalmist is not asking for help in his circumstances. He's asking for help in his heart. What we see as we read on is that the main cause of his despair, the hopelessness and, and his fear is the effects of sin in his life. Look at verses 2 through 4. I'm sorry, uh, 3 through 4. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In these verses, we get to see into the heart of the problem for the psalmist, into the root of why they're feeling cast out and feeling overwhelmed. This word iniquities that the psalmist uses in verse 3 means uh, perversity or, or, or depravity. And, and it's, how we were under, uh, it's how we're able to understand the sinfulness of a person. But it actually goes one step further. It's not just the badness of a person, but it includes how that badness makes us feel. And so our iniquities include our guilt and our shame and our sinfulness. 
So when we, in our sin, in our depravity, are experiencing the weight and the burden of the effects of sin in our lives, this is the place where the psalmist is crying out from. Again, not from a place of having to deal with like a flat tire or even losing a job. Like the reason for their great distress, which makes them feel alone, abandoned, drowning in the middle of the ocean, is because they're having an awareness of their sin. The psalmist is likely having a moment of sobriety, so to speak, where they're realizing the mess that they've made around them as a result of the mess that they are as a person. This is the power that sin has over us. And sin is not just some sort of abstract force of evil. It, It is an inherent brokenness in the world and in us. It's a spiritual disease which has physical and emotional ramifications on us as humans. Sin is why we lie, why we cheat, why we steal, and why we murder. But sin is also why uh, our our thoughts and our hearts, our intentions and motivations are also completely messed up as well. It's why we're selfish and why we're prideful, why we put others down, why why we puff ourselves up. Sin is why we demean others, why we treat others with contempt. Sin is why we hurt other people. It's also why we hurt ourselves. And it's why we worship people and things instead of God. Sin is also why we experience great guilt and great shame. It, it breaks down the relationship that we have with God. It, it breaks down the relationship that, that we have with one another. And it breaks us as people. One of the first effects of sin is shame. We see this in the Bible. In, in, in Genesis, where Adam and Eve are immediately just covering themselves up in their nakedness. They, they're covering themselves up. They're trying to hide in their sin. And when we have an acute awareness, awareness of our sin, when we understand the depths of our depravity and brokenness, it fills us with guilt. It fills us with a sense of dread. And perhaps the worst part about sin is not just its effects, it's the fact that sin enslaves us. It's a disease that we can't cure. It's a brokenness that we can't mend, regardless of how much self-control or self-awareness we have. No matter how much good we do, no matter how neat and nice our lives might look, sin sinks in deep, into a deep spiritual level, into the core of our very being. A place where no medicine can remedy and no surgical scalpel can reach into. The power that sin has over us is the guilt that it produces and the bondage that it has us in. That's sin. This is the depths from which the psalmist in Psalm 130 is crying out from. It's a place of complete and utter defeat, complete despair, complete hopelessness, a place of nauseating guilt and powerless slavery, a place that God hates with a passion. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What the psalmist is saying is if if God reacted to the sin in us, we'd be utterly destroyed. If God was not withholding his judgment, if he was not being merciful and gracious toward the psalmist, the psalmist would be wiped off of the map. Why? Well, we actually talked about this last week because God is righteous. He is perfect. We talked about how his very presence, like if sin were in his presence, it would be an abomination to the nature of God. We're not talking about a pet peeve of God or or talking about a preference of God. It's not like God likes clean and tidy rooms and he gets frustrated when your your room is a little bit messy. 
Sin is the antithesis of God. It is composed of everything that God is not. And so the repulsion of God away from sin is not because sin is a flavor of ice cream that God does not like. The repulsion of God away from sin is like the natural law of gravity. It's not just an emotional response. It is a cosmic law. God and sin do not mix because God is perfectly righteous and sin is the exact opposite. So what hope does this psalmist have? Uh, Why are they even calling out from the depths of their despair as they're drowning in the guilt and the shame of their sin if God hates that sin, if they can't stand in his presence in a sin, if God is repulsed and offended by sin as if it were a natural law? Wouldn't we, in our sin, be repulsive to God? Well, look at these verses in verse 3 and 4 again. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is pointing out something incredible here. That that even though it's part of God's character to be repulsed and offended by sin, in him is forgiveness for your sin. And this might be hard for us to fully comprehend and imagine because I I think we might be able to understand that God hates sin, or at least we've heard that before, but we have a much more difficult time understanding intuitively that sin breaks his heart. Like, sin hates, uh, I'm sorry, God hates sin um, because of the power of the guilt and the bondage that it has over his children. I want you to imagine a father who is an oncologist, a, a doctor who has devoted his entire life to fighting cancer. And, and imagine that, this, that, that his child has been diagnosed with cancer, a disease that has the potential to take their life, to, to make them suffer in pain and causing them to lash out in discomfort and despair, a disease that is causing great fear and hopelessness in this child. Now, the doctor is trained to hate cancer and to work toward eradicating it, but things have gotten personal as they watch the cancer attack the body of their beloved child. But as much as the doctor hates sin, it doesn't negate his heart for his daughter and his role as her father. God hates sin because it is the antithesis of who he is as a righteous and perfect God. But he also hates sin because it has enslaved his children. It's plagued them with guilt and with shame. And out of this, God would do anything to bring them healing and redemption. So what we need to hear this morning is that in God, there is forgiveness for our sins. There is freedom from both the bondage and slavery of sin that we're trapped in. There's also freedom from the guilt and the shame that are the effects of sin in our life. And the way that we access this forgiveness is by crying out to God, by confessing our sin to God and asking Him to forgive us. The one person who we've offended cosmically in our sin who is also able to forgive us for that sin who is able to absorb the pain and the hurt upon himself and not turn it back onto us, which is what forgiveness is. It's the absorbing of loss. It's it's saying, yes, you hurt me, and you deserve punishment, but I will bear the weight of this pain and the cost that it takes in order to forgive you. And that's what God does when we ask him to forgive us of our sins. 
Some of us this morning are carrying around the burden of sin, the nauseating guilt and the shame of sin, both sin that we've committed and that which has been committed against us. And the good news is that we don't have to carry that. As Christians, we can drop that heavy burden and experience the soul-lifting, heart-repairing forgiveness of our sin in God. I was recently at a grocery store with Chloe, and she wanted to help me hold our groceries. It was one bag, and it had cheese in it. And she made it a pretty good distance, but eventually she was like, Daddy, I can't carry this anymore. It's too heavy. And... Uh, thinking that this was a teaching moment about endurance, I was like, Chloe, you can do this. Like, you are a strong little girl. You've got strong muscles. You, you can make it all the way to the car. We're, we're already halfway there. And she's like holding it with both her hands, and she's like, Daddy, it's, it's really too heavy. Like, I can't carry this anymore. And I'm starting to be like, whoa, all right. right? And she's starting to like tear up, right? And I, and I realized, oh, this is a lesson about asking for help. And so I was like, hey, uh, do you want me to hold that for you? And she's like, yes. And people are looking like, why are you making your little girl carry the bag? <laughs> and, and, and it was a 12-ounce bag. I know it's 12 ounces because it was 12 ounces of Mexican blend shredded cheese, right? <laughs> and as soon as I took it away from her, she just, like, skipped away. She, she was unburdened. She was like, you know, like, light as a feather. And the point is, is that some of us are carrying the burden of our sin, and, and we have access to the Father who's more than willing to forgive us and let us skip away in joy. But we're struggling through the parking lot holding onto the burden and the weight and the guilt of our sin. See, if you're in the depths this morning, if you're feeling the hopelessness and despair, the, the weight and the burden of your sin, know that in God there is forgiveness. That you have access to that forgiveness by just crying out to Him. You don't need to make a case. You don't need to defend yourself. In fact, it's, it's not really asking for forgiveness if you justify your actions. Like, it's, it, it, it's not asking for forgiveness when you say to someone, hey, man, I'm really sorry that I hurt you, but, but you did deserve it, right? Like, that's not like a, a, a real asking for forgiveness. Asking for forgiveness requires com- complete humility and ownership over the wrongdoing. And the truth is that this is not the only option that we have in our guilt. Like, there are lots of things that we can do with our guilt, um, the guilt that we have from our sin. A commentator, Daniel Aiken, says that some people choose denial, and they refuse to believe they're guilty of anything. And others choose rationalization. They may admit they're guilty, but they blame it on something or someone, parents, teachers, government, culture, or genes. Another wrong option is relativization. Those who, those who choose this uh, this response point out that others are guilty also and that their guilt thus isn't so bad. He continues on. He says, instead of denying, blame shifting, or relativizing our guilt, the psalmist gives us the way to deal with the root of our guilt. Admit it and confess it to God in order to receive forgiveness. If you choose this way, you won't have to carry your guilt anymore. Mercy House, let's stop carrying the guilt and shame of our sin. Let's go to the Father and ask Him for forgiveness and be free from the burden of unconfessed sin. And when we do this, it leads us into deeper, deeper relationship with God. Look at verse 4 from Psalm 130. 
but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared that you may be feared. See, this concept of fear of God is one that we've talked about earlier in the sermon series, and this is not a terror or a horror. It's actually a fear that comes from a a deep reverence and respect for God and who He is. It's a fear that actually invites us into right relationship with God. And as we experience forgiveness uh, from God for our sin, it increases our respect and our reverence for Him, thereby deepening our relationship with Him. And when we cry out to God for forgiveness of our sins and we experience that forgiveness, it actually deepens our relationship with God. See, when our girls, we, uh, two little girls, I keep mentioning them, Chloe is just turned six, Davy is three and a half, when, when they're disobedient and they act out, like, it's never fun. It's never fun for us. Davy especially, the little one, she's incredibly stubborn. When she's in trouble, she scowls and she furrows her eyebrows uh, like this. I don't know if you can see it from back there, but my eyebrows are like really down. And that's what she does. And she's a thumb sucker, so she just stands there like this, right? And she shows you that, that, that she hates being uh, in trouble, and she stomps her feet. And when you take her aside and explain to her, and you say, Davy, uh, sweetie, it is not okay what you did. It is not okay to hit your sister with a chair, right? <laughs> this is a literal conversation that I've had with her. She maintains her scowl. She's like, mm, right? But you can see it starting to come, right? It comes like from a mile away. Her hardness starts giving way. Her lower lip and her thumb starts to, to quiver a little bit. Her eyes start turning to glass. Like she hates being in trouble. She hates being in this place of guilt. And, and then the floodgates just break and she feels the weight of her sin. At, at least what a three and a half year old mind and heart can grasp of her sin. And we'll ask her, are you sorry? She's like, yeah, I'm so sorry, right? And then comes the best part of discipling and disciplining your child, right? I'll open my arms to her, and she just sprints to me and jumps into my arms. And I'll tell her I love her as I hold her. And what I get to see in that moment as a father is is not just Davy's guilt as she's being confronted with her sin, but a deep sadness that it's actually affected our relationship. And that's why she jumps into my arms, Which seems counterintuitive, right? Like, why would she throw herself toward the person who is disciplining her? But she does. Because my open arms are an invitation to experience restored relationship with one another. She's experiencing forgiveness. And and as she's experiencing forgiveness, we're we're like growing together in our relationship. And so I'll I'll hold her and I'll, I'll tell her, Davey, I love you. It's time to go apologize to your sister for throwing a chair at her. And what's beautiful is seeing her then go and apologize to Chloe, and then Chloe immediately just opening her arms to embrace her sister and to offer forgiveness and restoration. The same thing that Chloe has probably very recently experienced herself. Like She knows what it feels like to be in that pain of guilt and of suffering, and then to know what it feels like to have open arms offered to her and for her to be able to jump into that, and they hug and they kiss, and it's like nothing ever happened, and life goes on. And they're closer together after that moment of reconciliation. See, when we cry out to the Lord in our sin, when we confess our sin and ask God for forgiveness, he will meet us with open arms. We just sang that song, and we didn't coordinate that. Our humility and honesty will be met with his mercy and his grace. And the dysfunction that we've created in our sin will melt away as we experience a deeper relationship with God. 
And not only this, but it will enable us to forgive others. As we experience restoration through God's forgiveness of us, we'll want to offer that same forgiveness and that restoration and reconciliation to those around us who have hurt us. It allows us to absorb pain and absorb hurt and place it at the feet of the cross and not turn it back on the people who have hurt us. I mean, this morning, for, for some of us here, it might be less about you needing forgiveness and more about you needing to offer forgiveness to someone in your life right now. And so know this, you can't force this. You can't manufacture a heart that desires to forgive. You can only be truly motivated by the forgiveness that you yourself have experienced in God. And here's the reality. If God has not withheld forgiveness from you, who are you to withhold forgiveness toward others? This is a hard truth. It's not easy. So I want to encourage you to pray about that. I would encourage you, if this is resonating with you, to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. Matthew chapter 18, 23 to 35. If you're struggling with forgiving other people, but that's a whole other sermon, so we're going to stay on track here. This is not like a magic formula or an incantation which always and immediately uh, yields results for us. We see this is true for the writer of this psalm as we read on in verses 5 through 6. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. While there is absolute certainty that God hears and responds, you'll notice that Scripture does not include timetables for this. And sure, there are times when I would want there to be some sort of like God prime, like, right, like free two-day responses, maybe even same-day responses in some cases. But in reality, there are times when we need to wait. And the writer of this psalm models the best way to wait. He says to, to, to wait with patience, in God's word and with anticipation, with patience in God's word, with anticipation. So we wait patiently for God's response by placing our hope in him. So this means crying out to God. It doesn't mean crying out to God and then looking for other solutions to, to deal with our guilt and our sin in other places. It means calling out to God, waiting patiently for the Lord as if he were our only hope. And this is not a call to cry out to the Lord and wait patiently doing nothing. And the writer says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. It means praying and spending time in God's word. So here it is again, Mercy House. If you were with us last week, you know that I went on a bit of a tangent talking about the importance of being in God's word. And this is why. God's word, it, it is not just old stories and rules. They, like, they give us insight into the character and the nature of God. They communicate to us truths and promises from God that, 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 that we need to recollect and constantly ponder, which give us assurance and confidence, especially when we're struggling neck deep in our sin. It is possible that as we cry out to God for help, as we wait patiently, and during that waiting we are reading and clinging to God's words in Scripture, that we'll hear a response through His word. That through his word, he will communicate what we need to hear in our deep depths of our suffering and in our pain. So Mercy House, read God's word. Read it regularly. It is the means by which God has ordained that we know him and that we hear from him. Even still, 
we might not experience rescue uh, while we're, we're, we're calling out and waiting patiently right away. Again, there's no formula here. Even if you are regularly reading Scripture, regularly praying, and asking for God to, to deliver you and to respond, it's, it's not a ritual, it's not an equation, but we wait patiently, putting our hope in the promises found in His Word, and waiting with great anticipation. Look at verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The repetition here communicates the importance of that phrase, and it's a dedication to what it's communicating. And this image of waiting like a watchman for the morning might be lost on us today, but here's the, gi- the gist of it. If you're a watchman and morning comes, that's a good night of work. Like that, That's good news. It means that your kingdom is safe, since bandits and marauders and, and armies are, 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 are only going to be attacking you in the middle of the night when you're the most vulnerable, when you're sleeping peacefully in your bed. I guess one of the few jobs where having an uneventful shift is actually really desirable, where no news from you is really good news. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's a division of NASA called the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. The Planetary Defense Coordination Office. And their job is to constantly monitor space for NEOs, near-Earth objects, which are things like asteroids and comets, which are on collision courses with Earth which have the potential of obliterating the world as we know it and eliminating all of mankind. That's their job. Their mission statement is to manage the ongoing mission of planetary defense. This is a real thing. I googled it. It's on the NASA's NASA's website. It is a very good thing that you've never heard a peep from these people. Like if someone in their office, as they're scanning the hundreds of telescopes that are aimed out into space, says, oh, hey, I think I found something, like that's really bad news. Like, there's no way that that is good news. We are to wait on God like a watchman waits for the morning. Uh, Like the Planetary Defense Coordination Office waits for a blank report at the end of the day. Because as the sun rises, with it comes hope and peace. The beautiful thing about this image is that no matter how long the night feels, no matter how dark the night gets, no matter how, whether or not you feel like morning will never come, the reality is that it will. Like morning will come. And as surely and confidently as we can wait on the morning to come, so we can wait with the same confident anticipation for the Lord to respond. So from the depths of our sin and our suffering, we cry out to the Lord in prayer. We wait patiently, holding fast to his word and with great confident anticipation. How can we have assurance of these things? Is this just Tommy being optimistic and hopeful? Well, let's just read these last verses and finish up for the day. Verse 7 through 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, we can have assurance and confidence in, in these things because in God, what we're seeing is that there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Steadfast love and plentiful redemption. If God did not love us, he would let us die in our sin without intervening. If God did not love us, he would allow us, he would allow his righteous and just nature to carry out the sentence of death that each of us deserve because of our sin. But out of God's love for us, he was not capable of inaction. 
We see this very clearly in John 3, 16 and 17. It says, for God so loved the world. This is his motivating factor here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Out of God's love for us comes our redemption. This word redemption, it can be understood as a ransom. It it is the price that's paid in order to redeem someone from slavery. It's the cost of freeing someone from slavery. We talked earlier about how the power of sin in our lives is the bondage that it has over us and also the guilt that it produces. And what the psalmist is saying that, that God not only forgives us from our sins, he redeems us. He doesn't just pardon our offense, our offense, he frees us from our slavery to sin and makes us whole again. Well, how does he do that theologically? Well, Mark 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, a ransom is the price paid to redeem someone from slavery, and the cost of our redemption from sin is not counted in dollars and cents. It's measured in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we sang earlier. And our redemption costs us Jesus' life. But he willingly gave it out of an unfathomable amount of love for you and for I. If you're not a Christian, this is the best news you will ever hear. That Jesus saw you drowning in the depths of your sin. And out of love, He willingly came into the world to save your life at the cost of his own. And all you need to do is to cry out to him, to pray to him like the psalmist, that God would hear your cries, that he'd be attentive to you. And as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, your hope in him will not be in vain. God responds with eternal salvation to those who ask for it. And so if you are not a Christian, you're hearing these words this morning, I want to encourage you to cry out to God, to receive forgiveness for your sins. For those of us who are Christians, who have called out from the depths of our sin and have experienced God's steadfast love and his plentiful redemption in our lives, let's let's walk in it. Let's continue to cry out to God, not because we're hopeless and lost in our sin, but because sometimes we forget our freedom and sometimes we find ourselves back in those depths. And being rescued from sin doesn't mean that we are immediately sinless. So as those old sins pop up, as we're tempted with new sins in the future, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Cry out to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness of your sins. Repent and turn away from that sin and then walk in the freedom from from slavery and guilt that God has purchased in your redemption. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion reminds us of God's steadfast love and his plentiful redemption. And we're reminded uh, of, uh, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us, and not just to free us from our sin, both the bondage and the sin uh, of the sin and then the guilt of the sin, but also to reconcile us back into relationship with Him. And so ask 
for forgiveness for your sins this morning. Trust and hope in his steadfast love and his plentiful redemption. And remember that he is waiting for you with open arms. Let's pray. Father, you are a God that is righteous and just who is absolutely loving and patient and merciful. God, we confess our sin to you. God, you know the depths of our heart and our brokenness. You know the areas that no one else knows. You know brokenness in us that we're not even aware of. Yet despite that, in spite of that, you have made it possible for us to be forgiven and to be reconciled with you. And we thank you for that, God. We thank you that we have this opportunity to jump into your arms as we experience your forgiveness. I pray for those this morning who don't know your forgiveness, God, who are feeling like they are in the depths, feeling cast out in the ocean by themselves, overwhelmed and drowning. I pray that we would cry out to you from this place. We thank you for the assurance, knowing that when we cry out to you from this place, you will hear us and, and you respond. We know this because you have ultimately responded in allowing us to um, experience salvation through the life of Jesus. So I pray as we take communion now that you would allow our hearts to be humble and contrite and honest before you and pray that we as a church would experience your forgiveness and your redemption this morning. God, we love you. We pray that you would give us grace and mercy as we extend this forgiveness to others around us as well, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.